1: Hello, and welcome to the Hashtag Brands edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon. I have Anna Szymanski here as usual. Hello. And Kyle Chaker. Hello. Kyle, introduce yourself.
2: Uh, I am a freelance writer in Brooklyn, and I think I write a lot about hashtag brands. Uh, <laughs> the brands of actual brands, uh, fashion brands, aesthetic brands, You you wrote, of brands. yeah Read,
1: read Kyle's piece about Monocle. It was awesome. Monocle is a brand. Mo- Monocle is a is lifestyle a, brand. It's a lifestyle brand, which I'm mildly obsessed by, um, because it's, and we will get Into this, but one of the interesting things about Monocle is that you kind of buy into the whole brand, um, which is a publication, but it doesn't really have any um, distinction between editorial and advertising. And so if you buy into the brand, you read the editorial to learn what brands to like and you read the ads to read to learn what brands are like and they're the same thing.
2: Yeah, the editorial is like the image of editorial. It's like a an approximation of what a magazine would be if there was a magazine there, but instead it's just like images of shirts and like places that you can go.
3: <laughs> Which isn't that different from a lot of other magazines. <laughs>
2: True, yeah.
1: But I so yeah, so there's there's a wonderful way of like brands sort of scratching each other's Back And this is, this is a classic example of it. But we are going to talk about a bunch of brands today. We're going to talk about Starbucks, because they're in the news. Um, we're going to talk about all of those um, kind of Edison bulb exposed wood coffee shop type things, which Kyle has um, dubbed airspace. Was that your coinage? Yeah. That, yeah. That's for a- like the
2: aesthetic, for the interior decorating style of these
1: places. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how the big global brands act, not just Starbucks, but also places like Coca-Cola. And we're going to mention, because Dan Schrader is a huge fan of this, the um, awards speech given by Adam Pally at the Shorty Awards, which was um, memorable. Dan is Dan is grinning from ear to ear. He enjoyed it. Um, but, Kyle, let's start with a, a really basic question, which I think is impossible to answer. So I'm going to ask you, which is like, what is a brand? I know that if you look at the stock market and some big consumer goods company buys another big consumer goods company, they pay billions and billions of dollars in goodwill for a brand. And so these things are obviously incredibly valuable, but what are they?
2: Yeah, I feel like people use the word to describe a lot of different things now. Like, in part, it's a marketing identity and it's like a byword for the entire audience that a thing attracts and like in a, the allegiance that it commands with whatever its product is, whether that's like a name or a style or a space or whatever. But then people talk about like their own personal brands, which is also kind of their own marketable persona that exists in the world and, and like a, a curated, focused. A specific idea of themselves that's broadcast through, you know, similarly through style or through what they create or what they consume.
1: My idea is it's it's largely about continuity. Um, that it's a way of not having to think about what something really is. Um, and my, one of my favorite examples is wine labels that. If you just drank wine out of unmarked bottles the whole time, then you would spend a lot of time sort of tasting the wine and trying to work out whether you like the wine or not. But with once you introduce wine labels, then you can open a bottle of wine with a certain label once and drink it once and do, go through that process. And then once you've done that, you can like just say, oh, I know what that wine tastes like. And you can assume that all other wine with the same label tastes the same and you don't need to do that anymore. Same with Starbucks, right? Which is that once you've decided whether you like or you don't like Starbucks, it might, it becomes incredibly easy to make that decision of whether or not to go to another Starbucks.
3: And I think that's a useful um, way that brands function. Is that there's you know thing of such a thing as decision fatigue, or the idea of every day having to make okay, where am I going? And and if you know, okay, I can expect a certain experience, I can expect a certain product. I think people claim that they don't like that, that they don't want to be generic, but everybody kind of doesn't want to be that surprised.
1: We have to and that, and that's I mean that's kind of what the personal brand is as well, right? You you don't want to have to re-judge people every time you meet them you you want to be able to say i know that person (laughs) this person is like that and that and that's their personal brand
2: yeah a brand is like a shortcut so whether it's like for starbucks or for a person (laughs) or for like a magazine you're like okay i know i know this thing by its signifiers like i know it because of the style of the cover or who the person is or the starbucks logo and then you can have the judgment lined up in your head already
3: yeah, and I think there's also a way that kind of going into, I think, but we'll talk a little bit more later about how style functions as a brand. Because sometimes you can just look at the outside of a restaurant or you can look at the interior of a restaurant and you can get a pretty good sense of what you're going to get just because it's similar to a certain other aesthetic that connotes certain things. So even if it's not a chain, it still functions the same way.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. And, and like different font choices do the serve the same purpose and that kind of thing. But let's talk about Starbucks because we're in the middle of a explosion of coffee brands the blue bottle coffee and bluestone lane and counterculture and luck alarm and there's a million third wave coffee brands coming along right now all with their own slightly separate identities but all of them seem to be in one way or another, focused on the coffee that if you buy, like, you know, they're like intelligentsia coffee, it's really good. Um, and people identify them with the quality of the coffee. And I feel that that was the case in the early years of Starbucks, that they would come along, you know, second, at the beginning of second wave coffee, and they were like, this is better than you get at your local diner. And people like, this is, and, and so people would become, Allegiant to Starbucks coffee because they liked the coffee, and then at some point over the past y- you know decades or however long it is, the Starbucks brand kind of morphed so that it 's no longer really about the coffee and it's now more corporate and bigger and it 's something else mm-hmm.
2: it's become like a brand for a certain kind of public space and a certain kind of like community
1: also and so what happens when a uh, racist store manager in Philadelphia calls the cops on two customers just because they're black, is that really hurts the brand, even though it says absolutely nothing about the coffee.
3: Right. Because as you were saying, no one really goes to Starbucks because Starbucks is such a great coffee. You go there because often because that is a meeting place. You go there because it suggests certain things about the space. And when that kind of thing happens, people don't want to be associated with that. So that could legitimately hurt the, you know, quote-unquote brand equity.
1: Certainly, if you want to meet someone... it feels much more natural to meet them in a Starbucks than it does to meet them in a McDonald's. And, you know, since 2004, I think we've basically known that McDonald's coffee is better than Starbucks coffee. But that doesn't change your behavior in terms of if you're going to meet someone for coffee, you're not going to meet them at a McDonald's or certain types of, you know, urban professionals don't meet each other for coffee at McDonald's. They meet each other for coffee at Starbucks because there's something else going on there. And I'm interested in trying to work out what that is.
2: Yeah. I mean, it seems like over the years, the product that Starbucks sells is less the coffee than it is like the experience of being in a Starbucks, which functions as like a meeting place or like using a bathroom in a city or as, like, a, you know, place to rest for half an hour. Like, you have other companies now that are entering into that space, like a WeWork or a Breather or something that offers space as a product. But Starbucks still has this, like, aura of coffee.
3: Well, and the idea that it's so much cheaper because you can just buy one coffee and sit in a Starbucks for six hours. Or
1: buy zero or coffee. By, yeah, yeah, it's true. And, and, and so, yeah, and so... When Starbucks is giving away, you know, workspace for free, it's interesting that WeWork, um, which is another, like, fast-growing brand, has been able to get a huge amount of cultural traction, um, and not to mention private market valuation, by charging a lot of money for a similar product. How, how Like, w- again, like, it? what is it that WeWork is doing that, is allowing them to do that. Let's see. Maybe there's
2: like a spectrum of these products too. Like if Starbucks is a kind of on-demand, very casual public space or like lifestyle space that you can go into, then WeWork is like the next level up where you're a monthly member. You might have a specific space that's just your own. You feel like more belonging within this community that's not just physical, but has like a digital social network attached. It has like other benefits to you you come to like identify as a as a we work consumer Versus people identifying as Starbucks consumers, which because it's still coffee, people don't really do as much.
3: Yeah. And I do think there is a difference. There, There is a pretty significant difference between going to a Starbucks, which I usually think is for short meetings. Or, yes, you could work there the whole day, but I don't think as many people do that now because you have more of these co-working spaces where they do offer more amenities. And, like, if you want to have a more legitimate meeting with people, that's going to, you know, you need a whiteboard. You're not going to be able to get that at a Starbucks.
1: <laughs> right. um, and as the coffee as the starbucks coffee brand becomes bigger and more corporate that opens up a space for smaller places to come in and say well that's now become declassé and we're going to do something more like honed and high-end and artisanal um and Kyle Chaker, you have kind of done the same thing to WeWork, right? You have like a honed and artisanal <laughs> version of
2: WeWork of your own. Yeah, I did. I started a co-working space for freelance writers specifically. Uh, but this is not very corporate. <laughs> I, I feel like if it was corporate, we'd have, you know, nice furniture or something. <laughs> but this is more, you know, clubhouse vibe for
1: for freelance journalists. Do you Do you consider yourself, like, how do you consider yourself in relation to... WeWork, are you are you the the do you have the same relationship to WeWork that, you know, Blue Bottle Coffee has to to <laughs> Starbucks? Uh no, I feel like uh in the coffee shop
2: metaphor it's more like a lemonade stand. <laughs> 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 like kids set it up on the side of the road and like it's 50 cents. Um but I do think it it this whole range of stuff demonstrates the the need that people have of like a community or like a belonging space. Uh And I feel like we see a lot of that now in like various digital communities that exist or these physical ones.
1: And the lesson of Starbucks and the reason why they reacted so quickly and aggressively and said they're going to close down all of their shops for an afternoon and apologize profusely was precisely because if what you're selling is a belonging space, then the last thing anyone wants to belong to is like a racist organization that, calls the cops on black people.
2: Yeah, it ruins their their actual product, which is not the frappuccino or whatever, but this this idea of space. There there's this coffee like edifice in San Francisco that keeps emailing me press releases. <laughs> and what it is is like uh, there's like a small coffee shop in this giant building and then the rest of the entire building is a is a co-working space. So there's like two levels of of participation. The first is you can just go to the coffee shop and and get a latte or whatever. But then you can also join at a deeper level and like go to the conference rooms and, and have your desk and stuff
1: within this idea of a coffee shop, even though it's not I think so I So they melded
3: I ac- Starbucks and we
1: were. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. I actually worked there once. It was just around the corner from my hotel when I was in San Francisco once and I needed somewhere to just like sit and work and have a coffee in it. And and like the first time you go there, they're very nice and they'll sell you like you can sit there for as long as you like for a dollar or something. And I'm like, okay, that works. It was fun. And plus it was... um. <laughs> Plus, it was all very airspace, which um, we will move on to. All right.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: One of the reasons why I've instinctively felt comfortable in this place in San Francisco, even that, even though there is something a bit weird about paying for the time that you spend in a coffee shop, is architectural and about the interior design of it, which really was this um, very familiar sense of, you know, exposed wood and not too comfortable chairs, but like up from like Starbucks level and the kind of like rather overpriced artisanal baked goods that you often find in these kind of um, coffee shops. And as you said, like the this aesthetic is now global um thanks in part probably to tyler brulee who was like really into it for a <laughs> long time yeah i wonder where it came from
2: or like what was the major forces behind it uh because i think so my theory is that this aesthetic of like reclaimed wood and edison bulbs and stuff it kind of came from that artisanal brooklyn period of like what 2005 to 2010 and although was- i
1: feel like it existed in london as well around Mm. then and yeah it probably it was probably a bit like invention of calculus it happens in a couple (laughs) of places at once yeah yeah it's it's
2: somehow it was the perfect solution for like the decade that it happened is that this this particular aesthetic was just what made people comfortable uh whether it was because it has more tactile stuff in an age of digital screens uh or whether it was just like cozy feeling i don't know
3: because it does seem we have kind of two very similar i guess you could maybe call competing or working with each other styles of either the very sleek kind of like apple store kind of cold style and then that kind of warm wood scandinavian style and they and i think they're kind of both reactions to the growth of technology whereas the one is quite more obvious it's like people like apple stores so i'll make my you know restaurant look like an apple store (laughs) but the opposite is that often when you have a big change in society you have somewhat of a pushback and i think as many people have said the kind of artisanal aesthetic was a pushback to that people wanting to reclaim something quote unquote" real
1: so so the question is what is the relationship between the airspace aesthetic on the one hand and the sort of hipster beards and flannel shirts aesthetic on the other are they, are
4: they- <laughs>
1: <laughs> i i feel like one
2: evolved into the other like you started out with the the reclaimed wood and stuff and then apple stores became like a more ascendant aesthetic uh and i think i mean i've written a lot about that kind of branded minimalism like the the super aggressive embrace of of emptiness and and blankness in in your space uh and to me, I feel like it's an evolution, like as tastes change, you want like more of specific qualities that were in the original and less of others. So in the Apple store, you still see the like, you know, big wood tables and you have this kind of warmth, you know, there's exposed brick sometimes or like the the wooden shelf infrastructure so that those are like specific qualities that would have been in a bar in Brooklyn in 2008, just like evolved.
1: One, one of the things which fascinates me about Apple stores is the semiotics of the blank white space are normally extremely intimidating. And that if you walk down a high-end street with art galleries, say, like you would never dream, like I, even I who like feel, you know, I feel quite comfortable in the art world. I feel quite uncomfortable walking into some of these art galleries. Um And one of the big problems facing retailers is, you know, they want to be welcoming and they want people to feel comfortable walking into their stores. And intuitively, the last thing you want to do if you want to be welcoming is to have a blank, white space, because that's about as intimidating as you can get. And yet somehow, Apple stores are constantly packed and no one feels any compunction walking into them. So how did... and, And I think one of the things about the... You know, exp- reclaimed wood coffee shops again. Was it? It felt more sort of cozy and um, welcoming. So, what is it about Apple in particular that they managed to solve this conundrum and become welcoming, despite the fact that semiotically there was it's quite intimidating.
2: Right. I do think that aesthetic is derived from like the white cube gallery, right, which is supposed to like decontextualize stuff and and kind of make it intimidating in some ways.
3: Oh, I was just going to say if I if I'm not mistaken, somewhat of the way Apple stores was designed was based on high end hotels that they actually went there and saw like what people liked and and they because Apple someone always positioned itself as a premium product. Right, the idea exactly. of paying and, more and, and
1: high end hotels are another prime example of a. Uh, an ostensibly public space or semi-public space that people don't feel permissioned to walk into unless you're a guest in the hotel or you're meeting someone who's a guest in the hotel. You don't feel comfortable walking into those spaces and using those spaces.
3: And I wonder if partly the... Why Apple stores are so popular is specifically because they're um, molding these two things, which is that it's a space that if it was an art gallery, if it was a very expensive hotel, you would have no reason that you would have to be there. So you would assume that people would think you're not supposed to be in that space. But it's an elite space that maybe you'd want to be in, but you don't have a reason to. So it's intimidating. Whereas you go into an Apple store, they want you there. People are going to meet you as soon as you come in. (laughs) So in a way, you're getting that elite experience. You're feeling like I'm part of this club but I don't feel intimidated because I have a reason to be there. I'm spending money.
1: I, I don't... You see, I'm not convinced because most people in an Apple store, or I would guess the majority, probably aren't going to be spending money. And if I walk into a you know, minimalist hotel or an art gallery and a human being approaches me and starts asking me like, and starts being friendly to me, that just scares me even more and makes me want to run away. I still don't understand what it is about the Apple store that people don't feel that way.
2: I think it might be partly the allegiance that people already have to it, right? Because you walk into a, the Apple store partly because you already have an iPhone in your pocket.
1: You're, you mm-hmm. you feel like your iPhone is a membership card. To yeah, the, to totally. The store.
2: And I mean, since they sell so many of them and they have so much cash on hand, why not open these like, you know, (laughs) Apple diplomacy centers in all of these spaces where people can just kind of walk in and walk out casually and and be reaffirmed in their Apple consumer identity and, and like enjoy that they belong there, even though it's a rarefied, aestheticized space.
3: Yeah, and I think it's important that Apple stores developed after people had already developed a brand loyalty to Apple. Totally, yeah. I think if Apple stores had developed first, they may have been incredibly intimidating. But as you're saying, you kind of essentially already have the membership card. Yeah,
2: and I do think the design itself is not completely austere. Like, so many of them now are... Really transparent. They have like multiple entrance points. They they're kind of like wide open spaces with chairs, and you know, like the the one in Soho has like a theater essentially in the back. Like it it looks like a, a embassy, <laughs> <laughs>
1: like the Apple Embassy that you one can day go it will into. be. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, it is it is clearly descended from international style architecture lots of steel and glass um and i think people like the public at large generally doesn't like international style architecture it's, it's still what are we now like 70 years since like mies invented it and people still find it cold and you know if you ask a bunch of architecture nerds what they think of the zeugen building they'll start failing but if you ask like a normal person they'll be like that's ugly
3: i love yeah. that building
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is like it's like the
2: taste has democratized somewhat right like people call themselves minimalists they like the apple store aesthetic but they're not like oh yes i really like circa 1930 modernist spaces you know <laughs> like this is still a rarefied you know aesthetic realm <laughs> that that people don't really know about as much either i don't think
1: Which, which you know since this is a highly digressive <laughs> episode <laughs> of Slate Money. I, we we can bring in um, the lack of widespread outrage to J.P. Morgan's announcement that they were going to destroy 270 Park, the Union Carbide building, which is now owned by J.P. Morgan, um, one of the icons of Park Avenue modern, modern modernism and one of the few buildings on that street or any street which was designed by a woman, and um and they're going to and it's also going to be the largest the tallest ever building to be voluntarily destroyed in the history of the planet and they're going to tear it down to build something even taller and a handful of you know architectural modernist Nerd types are up in arms, but the public really doesn't care. Like the public did not want Penn Station to be destroyed. The public really doesn't care about 270 Park.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's this artifact of like mid century modernism that I maybe you have a taste for, maybe you know the historical significance, but maybe the aesthetic has so deeply invaded every other aspect of life that you we don't feel this super allegiance to this one building. Or that it's like so transparent and elegant and vanishing that we just don't register it as I like think a landmark that's in the same as way. well.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I do think because these buildings do and also full disclosure I actually worked in the Seagrams building. Um, but these are the types of buildings that people don't feel comfortable in, even if they would have a similar aesthetic to an Apple store, because when you go into an Apple store, you're doing you're engaging in an activity that you feel comfortable doing. You're shopping. You that's most people don't even know what goes on in a lot of these other big modernist buildings. So that, that also doesn't surprise me. And it's a, it's a big difference from something like Penn Station, where, again, it's an act, it's a public space, and it's a space where you're engaging in an activity that people are familiar with.
1: I mean, it, so the old Penn Station was a, was a beautiful train station. It's, you know, we we have one of those still in, in New York, in Grand Central, um, which is a beautiful train station, and is one of my favorite spaces in New York. And we also now have a beautiful clean, minimalist, empty train station in the Oculus downtown, Santiago Calatrava, and it's just not as pleasant. For all that we can love, you know, osteo-minimalism, and for all that there's lovely decorative elements and it looks nice in Instagram photos, it's just not... It doesn't have the same feeling of being a nice place to be. Although I wonder if that's also because it's new.
3: I, you know, sometimes there are buildings that you they gain a certain sensibility or a certain relevance because they've been around for a long time and you associate them with films and songs and all these things. When something's new, you don't.
2: But I feel like this is also a difference between that past era of modernism and like the blank minimalist thing is I don't know that the blank minimalist thing will age well. Like, the, the interior of that space is completely white. It's not going to build up character in some way. Like, I was just thinking about the, the roof of Grand Central and the constellations. Imagine, like, someone building a, a thing with constellations on the ceiling now. It would look so tacky and insane, but we really appreciate the specificity of it. Whereas I don't know that the Calatrava building will, like, accrue meaning in that same way. Especially since it's essentially a shopping mall that people do like pop up brand experiences within. Although
3: Grand Central's <laughs> also kind of a shopping mall too.
2: True, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you have that like one central public space, it like feels so cozy still.
3: <laughs> Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
1: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, at my computer and I I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but
3: I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever
1: you get your podcasts. Okay, that's the perfect segue. Brand experiences. Um, Dan Schrader... Is has some tape lined up from a man who's famous from the telly called Adam Pally, who is giving an award to a hashtag brand at something called the Shorty Awards, which give awards to social media teams or brands who are working on platforms like Snapchat and Instagram. And, well, why don't we listen to some of this?
4: I guess I'll... F- Finish this shit show up. Here we go. (laughs) Delete my account. God, I I wish I could. Over the 10 years of Shorty Awards, social media has changed tenfold. Sometimes it's minor, like a redesigned feed. Sometimes it's major, the sunsetting of a platform. Tragically, we've lost some dear friends. Our platforms along the way I struggled as an actor for like (laughs) a long time tonight uh, we pay tribute to those who are not with us we're going to do an immemorial for a bunch of uh I don't know, like MySpace or some shit. I don't know. I,
0: I've been help-
1: <laughs> <laughs> At which point Adam Pally gets dragged off stage. Um, he, I mean, the he was very rude to some probably underpaid human beings who were there to, you know, enjoy themselves and celebrate themselves. And Taylor Lorenz wrote a good piece on the Daily Beast about how that was probably not cool and kind of bullying. But the fact is that the impetus behind what he was saying and the reason why everyone was laughing is because like you can't help but laugh at this idea that you know we should that the Brands are something to celebrate, right? Yeah. Like brands are your friends.
3: Right. Although was I the only person who watched that or watched that and was thinking of Mad Men where like Peggy's really upset that she doesn't get the Clio. Or <laughs> like, like I feel like I, I imagine that this isn't actually an entirely new thing. It's just it wasn't televised before.
1: But no, I think I think there's a difference. And I wanna concentrate on this because I think Kyle, tell me if I'm wrong here, but there does feel like there's a significant difference between the old school brand advertising, which, you know, of Madison Avenue and in print and on TV and on the one hand, and this kind of like celebration of hashtags and Instagram campaigns and Snapchat, um you know, whatever. I don't know what the hell they do on Snapchat, but apparently a drive sale somehow, Um, you know, th- there's, And there's a qualitative difference, but I'm having difficulty putting my finger on what it is.
2: Yeah, I wonder if it's, like, the the image of Mad Men is very artisanal. Integrations. That's
1: that's the word I was looking for. Brand
2: integrations. Brand integrations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because back in the day, you, it's like you have this team of artists who would draw things by hand and, you know, creative writers and, and whoever who would plan things out. And now it's like coordinating a group of Instagram influencers to wear the same shirt or, or go to the same hotel in Tulum or whatever. I wonder if it's just feels dumber.
3: Right, but I wonder <laughs> if it really is or yeah, and, and yeah. although having said this, and again, also maybe like full disclosure, I have lots of friends who are in advertising as well who I think are very talented. And as part of advertising today, you do have to work on social media. And I actually think there are people who do that very well. And do I think there should be a silly award show for it where people call themselves influencers? No, because that's ridiculous. But I don't think that means that just because people are working in a different type of platform that there can't be creativity involved.
2: Yeah, I think there's there should be good advertising on on I think Instagram advertising is probably the best social media advertising that I experience. Like the the ads are pretty well targeted. Sometimes the the imagery is actually very cool. Uh but the rest, I I mean Facebook ads are horrifying. Like Google display ads are the same dishwasher following you across the internet. Like, I wish there was an award creative. for the, yeah,
3: the the best Google ad.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the best text like, best keyword. Who bought
1: the best keyword this year? Yeah. Uh, so but there is but there is something weirdly cool about this you know that i mean you know the fire festival did sell (laughs) a whole bunch of tickets to uh the outhouse in the caribbean somewhere on the strength of its instagram ads and you know and one of the things that i noticed from a facebook ad actually this week was um that coca-cola is running an indiegogo campaign like you know indiegogo being like please, we're trying to raise a bunch of money to get the project off the ground. You know, this is the Coca-Cola company running an Indiegogo campaign for a new brand of water. Um, (laughs) And I'm like, and and it seems ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, but obviously the reason that they're doing it is because there's something cool about it. Mm -hmm.
3: This goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, the idea that Indiegogo connotes certain things. And Coca-Cola wants to associate themselves with those ideas of something being like kind of an upstart, a startup. I mean, Coca-Cola is certainly not a startup, but they can gain some of that cachet by using this.
2: And it's participatory, like in the same way that a hashtag, that people can use a hashtag or something. They can also say that they donated to this campaign and then feel some kind of like equity in the new water that comes out. (laughs) Like, I think that's what they're trying to piggyback off of, right? Because... You know, a Kickstarter campaign for, I don't know, that like internet connected cooler that happened. People were so into it and they felt like a part of it that they were helping to create something, not just consume it. So I'm sure, you know, why wouldn't Coca Cola love to to have some of that?
3: And it's clearly a f- clever marketing ploy because we're talking about it. If Coca Cola had just done an ad for this brand of water, we certainly wouldn't be talking about it.
1: Not that I can name the brand of water. But, <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, but this also ties into, uh, phenomenon that people are talking about at least in kyle world which is, <laughs> which is this concept of of post-authenticity this idea that once upon a time if a massive brand like coca-cola started big footing their way into uh you know crunchy granola kind of space like kickstarter or indiegogo people would say that's ridiculous as we are actually saying but there's A theory out there that we are now in a kind of post-authenticity world and no one really cares whether you're authentic or not.
2: Yeah, or just authenticity is an image that you can appropriate regardless of what actual meaning it has. Like, it's a brand. Authenticity is a brand.
1: And <laughs> I, <laughs> anyone can and anyone can adopt it, right? Yeah, yeah.
3: And I do really wonder what people mean when they say authentic, because I think there was a study done where they like were saying, do people care about authenticity? And then what are the brands that they think are more authentic? And I believe number one was Amazon. Then it was Apple. <laughs> then I think Google, Nike. So clearly what they meant by authentic was, I like it.
2: Yeah. Or like they they tell me what they're going to do and then they do it. Right? Like Amazon makes no bones about controlling your entire you know, life and going back <laughs> so to a,
3: right, going back to what we're saying with brands in a way. Maybe that's true. The fact that you know they're not pretending to be anything else than what they are.
2: But then Coca Cola going on Indiegogo is like not not an authentic move. But yeah, there so there are two essays that came out by Jay Owens and Toby Shoren, uh, both of whom work within an advertising and like consulting and research space versus like journalism. And so they were introducing this idea that like authenticity has kind of moved past its zenith and has become inauthentic itself, uh, you know, as its meaning just expands to to mean anything that anyone wants it
1: to mean. And is this related to the airspace phenomenon that as Brooklyn has, become global and you can walk into a brooklyn coffee shop in lisbon or berlin or hong kong like at that point there's nothing authentic about it anymore yeah there's nothing
2: specific about it right it doesn't it doesn't
1: connote a particular place
2: or a particular experience or a particular ideology it's just like a a ambient interior decorating scheme that that you maybe like or maybe hate now that it's so widespread
3: right but if what you think of when you see that space is that I'm going to get a certain type of product and there's probably going to be a certain type of person there. That is probably actually what you're going to get whether you're in Lisbon or Budapest or wherever, and going into that type of coffee shop.
2: Yeah, hopefully. But then I, I wonder if, like, as time goes on and the the decor becomes disconnected with the actual product, like, just because there's Edison bulbs doesn't mean you'll get a really good cappuccino, then you'll lose interest or lose connection with that that aesthetic as well. Certainly. Yeah, and
3: I was actually in a newly made starbucks like two days ago that had edison light bulbs in it and like a r- fake reclaimed wood table that was kind of amazing
1: yeah they, they started what's it called starbucks reserve or right, something. The, the new brands yeah the
2: new authentic starbucks brands <laughs> and then, yeah they're these like also there are these wider lifestyle experiences where you can like get a glass of wine or whatever and like meet your book club there
1: and and you can you can get a pour over at starbucks yeah which
3: Don't get me started on (laughs) (laughs) pour-overs.
2: There's also, there's a new blue bottle in Williamsburg uh, that I do really like, but it's like evolved this aesthetic to the point where it's this weird blend of like Japanese Danish that I think is very futuristic. Uh, (laughs) And it's just like giant curving walls with like wood slats on them and giant speakers mounted directly onto the wall. It's very, very hip.
3: And I think if the one thing we haven't mentioned, if you're talking about the development of this style and this kind of... sleek kind of lots of white lots of wood i think we haven't talked about ikea (laughs) which i think is very important in the development of this style or the person who invented shipping containers so that we all have ikea goods (laughs) like that has very much affected what people think of as stylish and because it's so affordable just many people are used to it
2: yeah it becomes like the dominant style because everyone can can consume it um yeah, but I think also the IKEA style derives directly from you know architectural modernism and then minimalism. Like Donald Judd's furniture it looks just like IKEA, and it's the same made of the same plywood in like a slightly different configuration, but
3: it costs a hundred times more. So, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that. No, but maybe it again goes back to what we were talking about also with the with the Apple store, the idea that the this style suggests certain things about the person who owns it. It suggests, you know, a certain status and that something like Ikea or the Apple store. I mean, the Apple store is obviously more expensive, but still you as just a fairly normal person can come in and buy something and then be associated with that.
2: Mm-hmm. You can consume the aesthetic right. in whatever way you choose, whether it's like being in the Apple store or going to the coffee shop or buying an Ikea thing. Or, or even
1: just buying a Chemex pour over. Totally. Like, yeah.
2: Just the symbol
1: of that whole culture is like mm-hmm.
2: contained within the Chemex.
1: And the, ca- <laughs> and the, and the Chemex is, um, is interesting because it, I I want to say it dates back to like the 20s. Yeah, It's been around a really long time and it basically hasn't changed. Which and is it's kind of awesome.
2: And it's this aesthetic of like, you know, light wood and glass, which is an Apple Store thing. Like you could see a Chemex in an Apple Store and you'd be like, okay. Cool, this is the Apple Chemex.
1: <laughs> the iChemex. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say it too loudly. <laughs> I I control my Chemex from my Apple Watch. It's, it's a smart Chemex. <laughs> they yeah, they they do exist. But um yes, let's let's have a numbers round. I feel like I feel like we need numbers. We haven't had nearly enough numbers in this show. There's no money numbers, yeah. Um, Kyle, do you have a number? Um, Yeah, though...
2: I don't know what number is a good number. (laughs) This is intimidating. Um, It's
1: okay. Don't don't, don't feel intimidated. We're not a white, empty space.
2: (laughs) Okay, I mean, I think this is a number that everyone is talking about right now, but the number is 100 million. Which is what? which is how many Amazon prime subscribers there are? That's a good number, yeah, I think
1: and so. I feel like it, and like this is an interesting number because it's the first time that Amazon has revealed how many prime subscribers they have, and it's also interesting to me because it's actually lower than people thought, really. Mm-hmm. There was a famous survey someone did where they decided where they managed to come up with this crazy conclusion that forty percent of American consumers were Prime subscribers. And the hundred million is global. It's not even just in America. So it's obviously much lower than forty percent. But this still seems like a a very
2: high number. (laughs) Uh insofar as like, you know, people belonging to a single platform that's not associated with a government or like a
3: (laughs) Yeah. And Amazon is such an odd company if you think about it as a brand, because it's not like you don't buy like Amazon stuff. But everyone will still use Amazon. So, I mean, I don't think people think of like the postal service or FedEx as a, you know, I mean, it's a store, but it's a, I don't know, it's, it's I think Amazon is a kind of fascinating brand.
1: Yeah, and, it's very diffuse. Like and, it's a and platform. Prime specifically is a mm-hmm. is a fascinating brand, and the way that Amazon has done a very good job of expanding it from like two day shipping to something much much bigger. And now it's like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a Prime <laughs> brand, and you're <laughs> right. like, okay.
2: But do people identify as Amazon Prime subscribers or members? Is I feel this like, like a guiltily. <laughs> <laughs> Right. like I, I'm I supporting the if, evil empire? If there was an
1: Amazon Prime store on my street, I I can't imagine I would feel like sort of permissioned or any particular desire to walk into it.
2: Yeah, because there's no value to Prime
1: itself.
3: Right, like but everyone. Uh, Everyone actually wants to be a Prime member because of the service, but nobody yeah, yeah. wants to admit that they're a Prime member.
1: They like the the invisibility of it. If if, mm-hmm. if and when Amazon manages to give everyone a Whole Foods discount, if they're a Prime member, then they'll be very happy to take that discount. Th-
2: this exists. There's like a credit card. And they have Amazon a credit Prime card, yeah. That gives you 5% off at Whole Foods, which like <laughs> really integrates the, the lifestyle spaces. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Anna, what's your
1: number?
3: My number is thirteen thousand nine hundred and
1: thirty-three. Okay,
3: so that's the number of puts on the S and P. Or sorry, so that's the. Is num- this a VIX number? This is a VIX number. Are we so, are we
1: manipulating the VIX
3: today? Yes, a little bit. Maybe who knows? But so this is the number of puts with a strike price of twelve hundred uh, on S and P that were purchased right before the auction that sets the price of the VIX. And so this, I found this funny in a lot of ways. I think. People have been saying for a while that VIX could potentially be manipulated because it is just based on these option prices. And obviously, if you have a huge position on the VIX, you could potentially lose money on options and still end up making a lot of money. But you're manipulating, you're obviously, manipulating the, the, the VIX. So, but the thing that I thought was somewhat the funniest about this was that guess what? The five day averages for this particular um, put for the volume
1: probably about ten.
3: Yeah, 22. <laughs> so it was just like that people thought that nobody would notice this.
1: Well, just, well kind I mean, of amazing to did make. they think that nobody would notice, or did they just think they were doing nothing wrong? Is it actually illegal to do this?
3: That's a very good question. And. You know, it, it's funny because I very recently was reading the, the book, um, The Spider Network on LIBOR manipulation. And it was kind of fascinating because that was this idea that a lot of people had of like, well, is this actually is there actually something written down that says it is illegal to manipulate this? And but I think everyone has a sense of like, it seems like it kind of should be <laughs> illegal, even if it's not. So who
1: knows? Um, I'm going to stick in in high finance for my number, which is 28 billion, um, which is the number of euros that Deutsche Bank transferred to Eurex, to um, the the Deutsche Börse Stock Exchange um, this week, for no particular reason. They just woke up one morning and transferred $28 billion to a stock exchange as part of... Um, what was ostensibly a collateral adjustment, and trust me, there was never any collateral adjustment, which is 28 billion euros. To put this in perspective, the entire stock market capitalization of Deutsche Bank is 24 billion euros. Um, they did phone up Eurex and say, um, excuse me, we seem to have given you 28 billion euros <laughs> by mistake. Do you think we could have it back? And, and Eurex was very polite, and they gave back 24 billion of the 28 billion. And then the other 4 billion they kind of held on to a while for 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 a while. But it still belongs to Deutsche Bank. So Deutsche Bank is probably okay. But it's kind of amazing that people can like move 28 that's like 35 billion dollars kind of by mistake.
3: Yeah, and I feel like we've had these kind of stories of, you know, frequently that these kind of fat finger mistakes that just keep happening. And it's the scare like be scared if you had something like a blockchain where you couldn't undo it.
4: Right. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs>
2: How does this happen? Is it really just like someone put too many zeros in a? Box? Yeah,
3: I mean, like, and then the like in theory four or five eyes that were supposed to be checking it didn't.
1: And yeah, there's meant to be like automated things which stop this from mm. happening, and it just didn't. They never do. <laughs> um, but you're absolutely right. This is the reason why financial transactions need to be reversible because you can never be a hundred percent sure you're doing the right thing, and the irreversibility of blockchain or of Bitcoin transactions is definitely, in that sense, a bug rather than the future. So yes, I think that's it for us this week. Kyle, Chaker, thank you for coming in. Thank you. It was awesome. We now feel much wiser on the subject of hashtag brands. (laughs) Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. And, And all you Slate Plus folks, stay tuned because we're going to have a bonus conversation about streetwear, which is another fascinating thing. If you want to understand the Supreme brand, which I think no one understands with the possible exception of Kyle Chaker, stay tuned to Slate Plus. Otherwise, thanks for listening and keep the emails coming. SlateMoney at Slate.com. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for finding that Adam Pally clip and producing this whole show. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.